Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Now I am my death and my decay, and soon I shall be nothing, but the schemes of my causes shall repeat itself and generate me again. I have lived six times to breed six new lines, and I shall be the same identical life. I was born again six times, six reoccurrences of myself. Read from a Spellweaver Resurrection Tablet. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we're going to be diving in a little bit deeper into the little more conversation on creating a monster in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Last week we talked about the Ragamuffin, and we followed the instructions in the 5th edition DMG, figuring out a couple of things as we went along to translate the Ragamuffin from 3rd edition to 5th edition. Today we're going to have another similar project We're going to be translating the Spellweaver from 3rd edition to 5th edition, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about my process on how I go about doing this. And it's a little more organic, a little more intuitive than actually following any real set rules. So I'm going to try and talk my way through it. And now the Spellweaver was a monster that I didn't even realize existed until I started flipping through my monster manual too the other day. And... It's just a really cool monster that James and I have just absolutely fallen in love with, and I'm really excited to see where this goes once we get done with it. The fact that these are, for lack of a better term, a hidden monster, because as we get into some of their lore and some of their characteristics, it really makes sense that while you should see these everywhere, you don't really see them. They don't pop up a whole lot, but they've been part of D&D since second edition, so they've been here a really long time. Actually, a little before second edition in Dungeons Magazine way back when. They've got some awesome lore behind them, and they kind of hit all of my geek buttons as far as monster creation goes. What do you say, James? Should we go ahead and just dive right on in? Yeah, let's go ahead and dive in, and we'll break down what the Spellweaver is. We can probably touch on why we don't think it came to fifth edition, any changes we want to make, and we'll just start deconstructing it to put it back together. All right. Now, you went and found a whole bunch of background lore for the Spellweaver that you really wanted to talk about. So I'm just going to go ahead and turn the floor over to you and let you talk for a little bit. All right. Like I said, they're in second edition, but they are actually officially introduced in an earlier version of Dragon's Magazine, which way back before the days of the internet, if you really wanted to get your D&D geek on, you'd actually have a magazine subscription. And it was Wizards of the Coast, and once a month they'd put out some new ideas or some new templates that people could try out. Wasn't Dragon Magazine TSR? Because Wizards bought Dungeons and Dragons from TSR between 2nd and 3rd edition. Okay, then perhaps it was TSR, and in that case I stand corrected. I wasn't alive at that particular juncture. I will date myself. I am older than Ian, but second edition came out the year I was born. So again, we're going back a fair bit here. But anyway, getting back to these lures of these Spellweavers, these things are humanoid-ish. And the fact that they've got a head, a neck, a torso, and they're bipedal. They generally have a bird-like or owl-like head that can turn 360 degrees. They've got reptilian skin. They stand to be about five feet tall, and they've got six arms. That is probably the most telling feature of them is that they have six arms. Yes, this is. And this will become very important later. The Spellweavers themselves are older than the gods. In the beginning, there was the gods. And before the gods, there were the Spellweavers. And apparently they had this huge civilization. They gathered things. They craved power. They were fascinated with languages. 
their goal was to find the actual words of creation. So the different forms of Spellweaver lore at this point kind of splits. At some point, one version is that the gods finally came about and realized the Spellweavers were too powerful, and therefore they caused what is called the Disjunction, where they split all the planes into as we know them now, instead of one just primal unified plane. The other theory is that the Spellweavers were trying to, again, find these words of creation to be able to create their own universe, to do their own thing, and their spell backlashed on them, it backfired, and it split the universe, and it destroyed their empire. So now you find Spellweavers not in a cluster, but you'll find them in one or two scattered throughout all the different planes. They don't particularly have like an ecology or a place of their own. They tend to like deserted quiet areas where they meditate. So again, it kind of works that they've been in D&D since almost the start, but you don't see them much. It fits in perfectly with their lore because, again, they're amazing, crazy monsters. Their life cycles are really weird. So as I read the intro quote, that was a resurrection tablet. So a Spellweaver lives exactly 600 years. At the end of the 600 years, it collects all its hoard of magical items and it draws all the arcane energy out of these magic items which I will also point in here, arcane magic, not dragons, spellweavers, meh. (laughs) But they drain all of the magic out of their horde of arcane items, and they create a stasis pod. They go into this pod, they stay there for a month, and at the end of the month, they rehatch out of the pod, they're reborn. They repeat this cycle six times. At the end of their sixth life, they again cast a spell on themselves, they drain their body of magical energy, their body decomposes, and a new spellweaver is born with their memories and their mental abilities still intact. So it's kind of like a magical amoeba, kind of. They also will reproduce through magical fission. So again, kind of like a phoenix or an arcane amoeba. These things kind of pop up, they collect. There are some other items in there. I'll let Ian kind of jump in and talk about these things because they are telepathic. They kind of work on the slot they're not up front like i said these are really really fun they are and the way that you're talking about how they reproduce it's very similar to the aboleth in that manner because if i'm remembering correctly if you kill an aboleth it ends up basically reincarnating and being reborn somewhere in the nether with all of the memories that it had when it died so it's a similar concept And again, those aboliths are still kind of creatures from the early primordial days of the universe as well, if I recall correctly. Yes, yes, they are. So again, they are the, before gods even were around, there were these things. Depending on which lore you look at, the aboliths basically were gods before the quote-unquote gods showed up and cast them down. That sounds kind of close to correct. These kind of have a little bit of flavor if you want to get Lovecraftian about the great old ones. You know, the gods before they were gods. In the beginning, there was just chaos. And before the chaos, there was the Abolis and the Spellweavers. And the Spellweavers may or may not have accidentally caused that chaos. I got to do a lot of research on these things. And they brought up the point with the amount of lore and the type of lore that these creatures have. They can be a once encounter. They can be kind of a reoccurring enemy. We'll talk about that later as we get into some of their abilities. They can be a plot hook in themselves, you know, whether or not you're trying to hunt these things down or maybe you're trying to work for one and they have you with a war against the gods. I saw one article that really prompted a really good campaign basically saying that you were working for a group of spellweavers and they said everything you know is basically propaganda from the gods. So you go on a celestial fight. So you're fighting on all the different planes and you're fighting angels, you're fighting demons, you're fighting infernals, you're fighting elementals. So you can, what they call is the key of, hold on real quick, I have it written down. 
the Kia reversion, which is their big thing. And they're hoping that when they figure out what this Kia reversion is, they can bring all of the planes back together and do one single plane again, which would be absolutely cataclysmic for the world as we know it. But for the Spellweavers, that would bring them back to the point of their power right before their empire collapsed. So with this plot line, they were basically saying that they had you going and fighting against the gods and the creatures, trying to figure out how to bring these planes back together, which would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be a really cool Planescape sort of campaign to play. So there are some weird, funky mechanical things going on with the Spellweaver in 3rd edition. For starters, they are, as the book puts it, pitifully weak when it comes to actual fighting fighting. So they're not going to be smacking anything, but they're very capable spellcasters. That's saying it lightly. Yes. The way that their spellcasting works is they can cast multiple spells at a time. They can use each of their six arms independently to cast spells. Mechanically speaking, they're able to cast up to six levels of spells at once. Right. Which is insane. (laughs) That's absolutely insane. Talking about how you want to bring them about casting these spells, depending on how you want to use them as an enemy. Having them pop into a battlefield, use one arm for a magnetic spell, so we're going to go enhance spell or empower spell. Go ahead and cast fireball, and then cast dimensional door. Or actually, in that case, probably not dimensional door. It would be because dimensional door is a fourth level. Because they have invisibility as an at-will ability. So they can walk in invisible. And they have plane shift as a -a once-a-day ability. So they can walk in invisible, empower a fireball, (laughs) drop it on your party... And then pop, plane shift, and they've just dropped a crap ton of damage on your party and phased out before you even knew they were there. I would actually say that they couldn't do that because in 5th edition, they're already using their action to cast the spell. And because they would have to use plane shift as an action, I would say, you know, you can do something like they walk in invisible, they go over to whatever it is that they're wanting to take, they pick it up. They can cast a hold person or a silence spell at second level and then dimension door out of it. Because they have metamagic abilities and they could use the subtle spell metamagic to not require verbal or somatic components. So they could cast it in the zone of silence. Or maybe they cast silence first. They cast silence, pick up the object, and then dimension door. Yeah. I was thinking a straight hit and run attack. I mean, they have all sorts of different things that they could do. Yeah, so, and again, we'll talk about what kind of spells you can give these things, but the way you can start blending these spells and using them in conjunction with each other, you can get extremely creative, and you can wreak all kinds of havoc with these things. They are kind of amazing. Because another thing that they have baseline in 3rd edition is they have see invisibility on permanently. So you can't just turn invisible and sneak up on one of them, because they will see you. No sneaky sneaky. No sneaky sneaky for you. So let's go ahead and break down their stats that we have in 3rd edition. They are back in 2nd edition as well, but we're going to go ahead and keep with the most current. I think they got touched up in 4th edition. They got broken up into a bunch of different types. The 4th edition spellweavers are really wonky, and they were just broken into weavers with different kinds. We're going to pretend that didn't happen because it was kind of a travesty. All right, so start off for hit dice, uh, 10d8 minus 10 because it has a minus one constitution modifier. So this thing only has 36 hit points. So they're Again, these they're, are super squishy. Yeah, but they're not going to be sticking around for any sort of fight. Plus three initiative, 30 foot speed, an AC of 18. So a plus three dex and a plus five natural. 
They get two melee attacks at a plus nine bonus with a 1d3 minus one damage. They also have spells and spell-like abilities, and they have a bunch of special qualities that I'm going to get into individually in a minute. The ones that aren't covered later on are 60-foot dark vision, and in 3rd edition they have a spell resist of 21, which is pretty insane. The way that spell resist worked in 3rd edition is in order to hit a target with your spells, you had to roll a caster level check. So you would roll a d20. I think it was you would add your spellcaster modifier plus the level of the spell to your roll, and you had to meet or beat the spell resist number. Does that sound right? Basically, if you were a 10th level wizard with 20 intellect, you'd be getting a, a plus 15. Is it your caster level plus your intelligence modifier? Or is I thought it, it was, yeah. I thought it was the spell level plus your caster now modifier. I got, now i got to look that up. You can see why the spell resist rules didn't really catch on in later editions because it was very confusing. The caster must make a caster level check, 1d20 plus caster level. Okay. So if you were a 10th level wizard, you'd be a plus 10. Yeah. 1d20 plus your caster level, but you didn't add any stat bonus to it. Okay. If you were a 10th level wizard going up against this spell weaver, which you realistically could because it is a CR10 monster you would have to roll a d20 anytime you wanted to hit it with a spell, and you would add your caster level to the roll. So if you were a 10th level wizard, it would be your d20 plus 10, and you had to beat a 21. Right, so you had to roll 11 or higher. Yeah, so you had a 50-50 chance of your spell actually landing. But they have some other abilities that pop up later on that I get to talk about, which they might just say, nah. See here, their saves, there's a plus 2 fortitude, plus 10 reflex, plus 10 will. Which makes sense. They have a fairly high dex score, and they are magically inclined, so they would naturally have a fairly high will save. Their abilities, Strength 9, Dex 16, Con 9, Intelligence 18, Wisdom 17, Charisma 16. Their mental stats are all really high. That makes sense for someone who is entirely magic. So again, these are magically pretty beefy. These are some of the creatures I think that we're dealing with for the first time that actually have some negative stats as well. Again, that strength and that constitution really, really shows up later. Yeah, it does. Their trained skills are Knowledge Arcana, Scry, Spellcraft, Spot, and Use Magic Device. Most of those are not in 5th edition. Arcana is, Spot is Perception, but the rest of those are not and it has the feats, Empower Spell, and large Spell, Extend Spell, Heighten Spell, Spell Focus Abjuration, Spell Focused Evocation, and Spell Penetration. So this is all very heavily in the metamagics, which are now all wrapped up in the Sorcerer class. But in 3rd edition, there were feats that you would actually pick up. Right, and so this is pretty much, these are definitely sorcerers now. They have innate magic. They're not studying for it, they're just born with it. So the organization, solitary, or a raid of three to six, I can only imagine what six of these things at once would do. That would be absolutely a 20th level encounter. Absolutely. Yeah, with them blinking in and out of invisibility and all of that nonsense, that'd be just absolutely insane. Six Spellweavers, each casting six magic missiles at the same time. Who, buddy. Talk That's about- 36 magic missiles. That is 36 magic missiles. That is somebody having a bad day. So now we're going to go ahead and break down some of the 
individual abilities that were given a breakdown in the book. Spell-like abilities, so always active is see invisibility. They can always see anything that is invisible around them at all times, which is really handy for them trying to find anything that might be hidden under some sort of spell, trying to obscure the location of something, but also real handy to make sure that nobody sneaks up on them. And it also would allow them to see one another and communicate with one another even when they're invisible. So, and at will, they have detect magic and invisibility. Again, that fits really well thematically. They're basically arcane pilferers. Things to kind of relate these to, the ethereals in Blizzard's WoW, particularly when you get into Wrath of the Ledge King. They were in Burning Crusade. Were they Burning Crusade? No, they were Burning Crusade first, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they're another storm. Of, they are another storm. I'm trying to think of the uh, race type that they're called. I don't think they're called the ethereals. They're called... Yeah, they're called the ethereals. Are they? Okay, they had it right. But that's what these guys are. And again, they're collectors of magical items. They're thieves. They're pilferers because one, they absolutely need a horde of arcane energy to complete their life cycle on each rebirth because they have to make that stasis pod. And two, they are looking for languages and magical items to find the key of resurgence. And then once per day, they can cast Plane Shift, which is their nope out of here button. In third edition, they were considered sorcerers. They cast spells two levels higher than their actual level. So they would cast spells as a 12th level sorcerer, even though they only had 10 hit dice. And they had the standard layout of spells known and spell slots available for sorcerers at 12th level. Their spell save DC was 13 plus spell level because... Spell save DC scaled off of spell level in 3rd edition. Or 15 plus spell level for the abjuration and evocation spells. That's where the spell focus magic feats that it has come in. Because they add plus 2 to your spell save DC. This is the one that I really fell in love with. Chromatic Disc. This thing's awesome. So I'm just going to read this part verbatim. A spell weaver is never without its chromatic disc. This six-inch diameter indestructible disc glows with colors that slowly shift through the spectrum. This object stores ten additional spell levels of energy that the creature can tap and use as it wishes. The spellweaver could, for example, cast two extra fifth-level spells in a day, or three third-level spells and one first-level spell, or any other combination of extra spells that adds up to ten, so long as no single spell is higher than fifth level. For this purpose, two zero-level spells are equivalent of one first-level spell. So two cantrips equal one first-level spell. To tap this spell energy, a spellweaver must hold the chromatic disc in at least one of its hands. The disc automatically recharges itself to full power every night at midnight. A spell powered by the disc is cast as though the caster had the spell focus feat for the spell in question. Only a spellweaver can utilize a chromatic disc. Should any other creature pick one up and try to tap its magical energy by employing the use magic device skill, for example, it explodes, dealing 40 10 points of damage to everything within a 30-foot radius. Big bada boom. Yeah, this chromatic disc is really, really neat. Digging into some of the lore, there was another object that player characters could find, and I do want to touch on that a bit if you don't mind. Okay, go ahead. So this other object that these spellweavers have that's just, oh my god, it's amazing. Like I said, this thing hit all my geek buttons. But this other object that players can find and use is called a silver hexametric. It's three pentagonal spellbooks that are covered in glyphs connected with a silver cord. You've got to succeed in an intelligence check to figure out how to use it. First, you have to break the silver cord. Then you have to open the books up and lay them out in a pattern where the glyphs line up. So obviously, if you have six hands, this is much easier to use. But this hexametric gives you... 
a handful of abilities that are really, really neat. The first ability is called Amnesis. You can tap into the collective memories of the Spellweavers, and you can gain a bonus to your knowledge checks. But at the same time, they tap into your knowledge too, so you kind of share like this quick little psychic link. And we'll talk about what happens if you try to telepathically communicate with a Spellweaver. It's not always the best or wisest thing to do. It is never the best or wisest thing to do. You can get Sinoshore. This skill makes plane shifting and teleporting spells more accurate. So instead of laying within a range, you can teleport exactly where you wish, which is kind of a nice thing. Modulate. You can cast a spell on a wand and infuse that wand with another spell. So say you had a wand of firebolt, you could modulate it and put a wand of fireball instead. Inversely, you could actually drain the magical energy out of a wand and it would give you spell slots equal to however many spell slots that you could cast on this wand. So again, if you had one charge of fireball on a wand and you used modulate to drain it, then you'd get one third level spell that you could use at your whim out of it, which is kind of a really neat thing. Siphon. So you can chain charges from a magical item to allow you to cast an expended spell. So if you're out of spell slots, again, you could find something else's magical item, siphon the energy off of it, and then cast another spell by draining the magic off of that item, which is kind of a great way to use and balance your magic items. But this last one, oh my god, this last one, it's called Spell Star. You create a hovering star, you cast spells into it, and if anyone casts those spells at you, the Spell Star automatically counters it. That's it. Done. So again, you've got the Spellweaver with a Spell Star rocking, and you cast Orb of Annihilation against it. Because you caught it unaware somehow. But you know what? It cast Orb of Annihilation into its Spell Star before, so poof. Spell means nothing to it. Nope. And because they are invisible and they will scry on something for a long time to figure out the best way to get in to get whatever they want, if they think that the party is going to be an issue for them, they'll tail that party for a few days and see what spells their spellcasters are going to be using. So that way he can prepare ahead of time, cast the spells that your wizard knows into his star so that he basically locks down your wizard for the entire fight. That is true. That's awesome. And something like Siphon, I was thinking this would be absolutely evil to do. But you're fighting the Spellweaver. Your party's getting banged up. He's used a bunch of his spells. You pull out a health potion to bump that health pool up a little bit. And he siphons the magic off your health potion. And I've got some, what I think is some pretty good ideas for what to do with the chromatic disc once we get it into 5th edition that I'll talk about once we get that far. The next thing listed in the 3rd edition book, immunity to mind-affecting effects. Because of its alien mind, it's immune to mind-affecting effects. So it's immune to enchantment spells. It's immune to fear. It's probably immune to illusions in 3rd edition because most of your illusions were mind-affecting. Dominate monster, control person, suggestion, no good. I think actually even things like hold person in third edition were a mind affecting effect. So hold person would not work on it. Then here's the one that we were alluding to a little bit earlier. Shielded mind. Attempts by creatures of other races to communicate telepathically with a spellweaver or to read its mind always fail. A creature making such an attempt must succeed at a will save DC 17 or be affected by a confusion spell for 1d6 days. This effect can be dispelled or removed with a heal effect. That's crazy. You're trying to figure out what this invisible thing that's been obviously tailing your party, so, oh, I know. I'm going to be able to reach out and touch it with my mind, use my mind powers. That's going to go so poorly. 
in third edition, this would be more of a thing because they haven't really brought psionics into fifth edition yet. But I would even say trying to hit this thing with a psionic attack might end up giving this sort of backlash. Oh, yeah, I would definitely throw that in. But yeah, so if I'm remembering correctly, heal in third edition was a fifth or sixth level spell. So yeah, you have to dump a fifth level spell into whoever gets whammed by this, or they're just loopy for 1d6 days. I mean, these things are sinister. The next one is spell weaving. We got into this a little bit already. They're infamous for their ability to cast more than one spell at a time. Casting a spell occupies the number of the spellweaver's arms equal to the spell's level, maximum sixth. A spellweaver can cast more than one spell simultaneously as long as the sum of the spell levels is six or less. It could, for example, cast one sixth level spell, a fourth level and a second level spell, a third and three first level spells, six first level spells, or any combination of spells whose levels add up to six or less. A zero level spell still occupies one arm. So, I mean, this thing could walk in and literally blast each member of the party with chill touch, freeze everyone up, hit dimensional door, blink out 100 feet, and repeat the process the next round and be like, what? No, because Dimension Door is a fourth level spell. Is it fourth level? I thought it was second level. No, Misty Step is a second level spell. Then that one, yeah. But I mean, just like I said, the mechanics you can get with some of these. So this creature is uniquely suited for using True Strike as it exists in fifth edition. Because if he has something like, say, Bigby's Hand which is a fifth level spell, he could cast True Strike, which is a cantrip, using one of his hands, use the other five hands to cast Bigby's hand, and then he gets plus 20 on his attack roll with Bigby's hand on that turn. Dear God. Yeah, so like I said, that is why this has such a low HP, because if this thing was statted like a normal monster with full HP, this thing would be near invincible. Yeah, it would get really nasty really quick. And then finally, the last ability is telepathy. Spellweavers can communicate with each other telepathically at a range of up to a thousand miles. Now with telepathy, how would you let this work? Because they do have shielded mind. And as we said, any attempts by a creature to telepathically communicate with a spellweaver obviously suffers the madness or has to make the save. It says attempts by creatures of other races. So spellweavers can communicate telepathically with one another just fine. Right, but the saying is the problem with the doors, it opens both ways. So what if a spellweaver tried to communicate telepathically with a party member on its own and just like kept basically ringing the doorbell to see if they would try to make that telepathic link and then drive them crazy? Well, for starters, lore-wise, according to the book, spellweavers don't really work with other races. You would have to homebrew that in to where you have a spellweaver working with another race. No, 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 you're missing my point. It's not trying to work with another race, but if it's tailing a party or trying to follow it, and it knows that if it gets into its mind, it can drive it crazy. So it tries to communicate telepathically with an enemy or another race for the sheer fact that if the other person says, hey, something's trying to reach out to me telepathically and tries to form that link, bam, they have to make a save. I mean, if you wanted to rule that, It could do that. That would be your prerogative as a DM. But just going off of what it says in the book, spellweavers do not communicate with anyone except their own kind. Full stop. Like I was saying, that would be something that you would have to... To homebrew in. Yeah. All right, so now that we've talked a bit about what the spellweaver was in 3rd edition, let's talk about how to bring it across into 5th edition. For starters, I really wanted to hold on to that solid 
exclusive spellcaster identity that it had. And my design focuses entirely around the chromatic disc because it has an intelligence as its top stat. And if we wanted to make it a sorcerer in 5th edition, we would have to invert its intelligence and charisma scores because sorcerers are charisma casters in 5th edition where they were intelligence casters in 3rd edition. So what I'm thinking is do it as they are wizards, but their chromatic disc allows them to cast metamagic as a sorcerer using the spell points stored in the disc. That makes perfect sense because that's basically what they would be in third edition anyway. Using those metamagic feats would bump every spell up one level anyway. One or more. Yeah, one or more. So again, that would be the same thing as tying up an arm or using a spell slot. So that fits really well. I think that sounds correct. If we're keeping true to that original concept where they are a 12th level sorcerer in 3rd edition, so we're going to leave them as a 12th level wizard in 5th edition, they would end up having 12 charges instead of 10 charges on their disc because basically they're sorcery points. You know what, though? I'm going to pause you real quick. Looking at their stat block, their intel is 18 and their charisma is 16. Really, we could keep them naturally as a sorcerer and then just bump their charisma up to 18. And then maybe take a point off their wisdom, drop their wisdom down to 16 to balance it out. So they would be a 9, a 16, a 9, an 18, a 16, and an 18. I mean, we could do that. And that saves us a bit of extra work on conversion. I mean, depending on how you want to do that. But those Intel and Charisma scores are fairly close. Because I do believe that even in 3rd edition, Sorcerers were Charisma casters. Were they? Yes, they were. Okay. But, I mean, it just feels to me like they should be intelligence casters. Okay. I can totally follow with that as an intelligence caster. It does make sense. The difference between they were being built up as a sorcerer type versus a wizard type. But everything about their lore sounds more like a wizard than a sorcerer. Where sorcerers were tied with dragon and dragon blood and things like that. Wizards were about study. They have that infatuation with finding magical items. They have that infatuation with language and learning. So lore-wise, a intelligence-based caster does fit much better. They feel like more of an archetypical wizard than an archetypical sorcerer. That me. is true, and I agree 100% with that. So that's why I was wanting to make them effectively a wizard that can cast metamagic using the points in their disc. Then, yeah, I have no issue with that. I just did want to point out that the charisma score... Well, one, I wanted to point two things out, that the charisma score was actually fairly close to the intelligence and that the sorcerers were, in fact, charisma casters in third edition. Okay. So the way I started it off, I left their hit points the same. So they're still going to have 35 hit points, which is 10d8 minus 10. They're still going to have a 30-foot movement speed. All of their attributes are going to stay the same. Okay. Are we keeping them at an armor class 18? In fifth edition, as we talked about last week, this is still fairly high. They have that plus three decks. They've got a five natural armor. But again, these things go poof if you touch them. So whenever I was looking through stuff, I found an ability that the Gith Zerai have in the monster manual called Psychic Defense, where they get to add their wisdom modifier to their armor class. And so that would give them a plus three dex, plus three wisdom as their base AC for an AC of 16. So you're going to strip them of their natural armor? But then they can cast mage armor on top of that. Yeah, they can which, cast which mage armor, stone skin, bark skin, and be like... <laughs> well, 
I don't know as if Mage Armor stacks with those other ones. But if you have Mage Armor, that makes it 13 plus your dex. And then with the Psychic Defense, you would get to add your Wisdom modifier as long as you're not wearing armor or carrying a shield. Ultimately, give you an AC of 19. Okay, yeah, I think that works good. They're going to have to burn some spells in a turn for that. So, yeah. And again, as we talked about earlier, the schools of spells these things focus on, which again, kind of tie into that whole intelligence caster, is going to be evocation and abjuration. So they are going to know a fair amount of those defensive spells, as well as the spells that go boom. Those are what they're really going to be focusing on, is I think they would be focusing mostly on evocation spells that have a defensive secondary benefit for them. So things like Ray of Frost that slow your target, Cone of Cold, you know, things that put a debuff on whatever they hit in addition to dealing damage as opposed to just straight up force damage. Because they're focusing on abjuration magic, I kind of want to give them mage armor either as something that they always have active, like see invisibility, or as an at will. I believe in the second edition version they had mage armor always active in this case i would make it at will but i believe in the second edition AD&D they included mage armor was constantly active okay saving throws if we go strictly off of what we got in the monster manual 2 from third edition it would be dexterity and wisdom because they have a high reflex save and a high will save they have an extremely high reflex and will save so i would give them expertise in those two stats I wouldn't go that far just because of how they scaled in third edition. Okay, so at least proficiency. The question is, do we want to give them proficiency with wisdom or with another mental attribute like intelligence or charisma? I kind of want to leave it as wisdom because because it's It's a more common save. It's a more common save and it also lines up well with that whole shielded mind archetype. So with their proficiency bonus, if they're a 12th level caster, their proficiency bonus is going to be a plus four. So plus three from their stats. So they would get a plus seven on their decks and wisdom saves. So for their skills, based off of what they have in third edition, Arcana is an automatic. I'm going to go ahead and give them expertise with Arcana. So they get to double their proficiency bonus. That would be four times two, eight plus three for intelligence so that would give them a plus 12 to arcana just starting off they would also get perception because they are trained in spot in third edition again that makes perfect amount of sense so they would get a plus seven to their perception score which translates to a passive perception of 17 and i kind of wanted to give them insight and sleight of hand Absolutely with insight. Sleight of hand. With the deck score being as high as it is, I could kind of see that. I don't think they're going to be using sleight of hand as much unless they're just doing some plain old fashioned thieving. Well, I mean, that's more or less what they're doing. They're showing up to take these magic items. Yeah, they are. I don't see them as thieves as much as they go in and claim something and just take it. They're going to try and avoid combat if they can because they're squishy. So they're going to infiltrate as easily as they can, as quickly as they can, get to whatever it is, and neutralize whatever they have to in the immediate vicinity, grab whatever it is and go. But that thing that they have to grab might be in a trapped container. So that's where I'm going with that. I mean, I could see that. Like I said, it fits. It's just nothing that I would have thrown right on top. I can get rid of it if you don't love it. 
No, I mean, it's not that I don't love it. It's just like, again, that wasn't one of the things I was thinking at this that I wasn't really expecting. Looking at some of the other skills, I would honestly give them history just because they're so incredibly long lived. Okay. I'm all for replacing sleight of hand with history. Yeah, I mean, either way works just because each one lives for basically six times 600. So your single spellweaver lives 3,600. You're going to have some history behind you on that. But not only that, when they're reborn, they're reborn with all their memories. So they have millennia of knowledge. Condition immunities, they're going to get condition immunities to charm and fear. Absolutely. Because of their immunity to mind-affecting effects. I'm pretty sure that those are the only real conditions that parallel that. Maybe paralysis? I'm not certain. Antipathy sympathy would be one as well. Because again, that's a mind-affecting spell as well. Yeah, but that's not a condition. Okay. Per se. I mean, I think that technically that would fall under a charm condition for sympathy. Senses, dark vision 60 feet, passive perception 17. You can translate that straight across. Language is none because it doesn't communicate with other races. Where did you that it doesn't communicate with other races? Because I missed that. Because that's their whole thing in the lores. They're actually infatuated by language. They may be infatuated by language, but they're not infatuated with speaking with other people. That's what I'm saying is where did you read that? Because I missed page, that. Page 187 of Monster Manual 2. Quote, spellweavers do not communicate with anyone except their own kind. This means, of course, that no one has ever had a meaningful conversation with a spellweaver, so nothing is known about the background, motivations, or society of these creatures other than what their actions reveal. Occasionally, for reasons no one else understands, a spellweaver leaves a written note where a humanoid can find it. Such messages are invariably rambling and often completely incoherent, so they usually raise more questions than they answer. Spellweavers do not speak, but can communicate with one another telepathically over a distance of a thousand miles. Okay, so they don't speak because they choose not to speak, but they can write. Yes. So that would be, you'd have to have the language proficiency to be able to read and write, correct? Well, I mean, they would basically be under the effects of the comprehend language spell at all times. If you want to give them that, I would do that. Otherwise, I would give them languages all. They have access to all languages, they just choose not to use it. I mean, but mechanically speaking... As a monster, they don't have any languages because they don't communicate. So, again, that's because if they didn't have any access to language, then how are they going to write or leave a note or leave a book or anything like that? I don't know. That one's kind of tricky. That's an all or nothing thing to me. Either they can be versed in any language or none at all. If you want to go with none, then I'm okay with that. Because at least in monster stat blocks, languages comprises spoken languages. Languages that you can communicate with whatever you're talking to. That, I mean, I'm not above putting all, but read and write only. would work as well. And again, it's just a caveat. They choose not to speak, but that's a lore question, and that's definitely a flavor thing. I mean, when you're sitting there rolling this thing on a table, you can talk at a spellweaver all you want, and it's going to act like it doesn't understand you because you're just beneath it. And if you're going to try to communicate telepathically, well, pick whatever language you want because the same thing is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I can go either way on that one. So challenge rating 10, I'm just going to translate that directly across it's hard to figure out challenge ratings for something like this because of the nature of its weird relationship with magic it does have a very weird one though for giggles i wouldn't mind trying to run this through the same process to figure it out at the end of everything like we did with the ragamuffin last week i mean we could do that fairly easily on the defensive side but on the offensive side we're going to run into trouble because that would require us to give it a full loadout of spells, 
and then to figure out what spells it's going to cast on a given turn, average out the damage of all of the spells that it's going to do in a given turn. And yeah, it's going to take a while to try and figure that out. But anyway, so next thing on the list, innate spellcasting. If we're going to be treating it as a wizard, its innate spellcasting ability is going to be intelligence, and it can innately cast the following spells. It already had sea invisibility. I've added mage armor as always active. It already had detect magic and invisibility as at will. And I want to add identify. Absolutely. You need to identify. And non-detection. What exactly does non-detection do? I'm not familiar with that one. And you would ask me whenever I don't have my player's handbook right in front of me. I think what it does is it makes you harder to detect with scrying. Okay, that makes sense. In second edition, they actually had an ability that would prevent scrying within 200 feet of them. So they definitely need that non-detection because that is one of those carryovers from second edition that didn't come into third. For the duration, you hide a target you touch from divination magic. The target can be a willing creature or a place or an object no larger than 10 feet in a dimension. The target can't be targeted by any divination magic or perceived through magical scrying sensors. So they would be able to cast it on themselves so that no matter what, when they're invisible, you're not going to find them. Yeah, I like that. And again, if you go back to some of their lore where they fought with the primordial gods before they were gods or as they were ascending to godhood, as it were, you would definitely want things to deflect some divination magic or to hide your plots and plans. This fits in with their lore really super well. And then once per day, according to the book, they get plane shift. So that's going to stay. And I want to add once per day, they can cast scrying. So that would be innate spellcasting once a day. None of these are direct combat abilities. So none of these are things that are really going to help them in a fight. They're all utility, but they're all utility things that as a DM, it's nice to have a monster that has all of these things so that you can explain away all of your machinations. So next up would be spellcasting. Spellweaver casts spells as a 12th level spellcaster. His spellcasting ability is intelligence. It would be a spell save of 16 and plus 8 to hit with its spell attacks. It has the following spells prepared. And I just made a little list. We can talk them over or we can skip over this because it's going to take a while. If you put that up, which is good, I think that's just a suggested. I don't think that should be uh, written in stone. Because, and I went through and I picked all of these. This is based off of the number of cantrips and spells per day that it can prepare as a 12th level wizard with an 18 intelligence. So it would get five cantrips and it can prepare 16 spells a day. So I just went through and picked a batch of spells that felt appropriate. So for cantrips, got Mage Hand, Mind Sliver, Ray of Frost, Resistance, and True Strike. All of those sound great. For first level, I've got Chromatic Orb, Color Spray, Shield, and Thunder Wave. I wanted Thunder Wave in there as a way to get melee attackers away from it if somebody closed in. And that's the great thing is these creatures can blend the offensive and defensive spells so easily. For second level, I picked Hold Person, Silence, and Tasha's Mind Whip, which is a new one from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. It's actually really cool. Because it's so new, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what it does. You psychically lash out at one creature you can see within range. The target must make an intelligence saving throw. On a failed save, the target takes 3d6 psychic damage, and it can't take a reaction until the end of its next turn. Moreover, on its turn, it must choose whether it gets to move, take an action, or take a bonus action. 
it only gets one of the three. On a successful save, it takes half damage and suffers none of the other spell's effects. Wow, that is... It is a lockdown button. The absolute best crowd control ever. Yeah, and where it's a second level spell, it could cast it three times. That's half your party or more, just locked down. Yeah, and it's an intelligence save, which you don't have a whole lot of classes that have proficiency in intelligence saves. I think just the wizard has proficiency with intelligence saves. This would be one of those campaigns, and I would do this early on to the party just to make them mad and show them an enemy. But I would have this, like, cast that with one or two spells lock down the party and then just have it walk up and steal an item from each of them because it can and then poof out with face shift. So third level, I have counterspell, dispel magic, thunderstep, and wind wall. You have a good blend of offensive and defensive there. I, I like those. Actually, I think I'm going to leave wind wall out because I just realized I had one extra spell. I was only supposed to have three spells at third level according to what I was planning on doing. So Windwall is good, but it's not better than the others. I don't know. I like Windwall because Windwall deflects ranged shots. It does deflect missiles. That's right. I might do Dispel Magic instead. Yeah, I could see that one going. I mean, um, it's got enough that it's, it could do. It's absolutely going to keep Counterspell. And Thunderstep is a great nope button. I don't know if you know what Thunderstep does. It's basically Misty Step on steroids. So you get to move 90 feet at a time, and you leave a shockwave when you go. Then for fourth level, I've got Death Ward, Dimension Door, and Otoluk's Resilient Sphere. I'm not familiar with Resilient Sphere. What's that one do? Basically, it puts you in a hamster ball and nothing can get in. Or actually, you typically put it around something else, because I think it also blocks teleportation. So you can basically lock down somebody for the duration of the sphere. And again, that ties in with that second edition ability. It prevented scrying, but also prevented teleportation in and out. Basically, it was kind of like that bubble they have over Hogwarts. So a creature or object of large size or smaller has to make a dex save. On a failed save, it's enclosed within the bubble. Nothing, not physical objects, energy, or spell effects can pass through the barrier in or out. Though the creature inside the sphere can breathe there, the sphere is immune to all damage, and the creature or object inside can't be damaged by attacks or effects originating from outside, nor can a creature inside the sphere damage anything outside of it. The sphere is weightless and just large enough to contain the creature or object inside. An enclosed creature can use its action to push against the sphere's walls and thus roll the sphere up to half the creature's speed. Similarly, it can be picked up and moved around by other creatures, and it can be destroyed with the Disintegrate spell. That is definitely a Pally Bubble. Yeah, it's a hamster ball. It really is, yeah. And then for 5th level, I've got Bigby's Hand and Cone of Cold, and 6th level, Globe of Invulnerability. I like it. And then, on top of all of this, the next thing on the list is Spell Resistance, because it has a Spell Resistance in 3rd edition. I wanted to carry that over into 5th edition, just giving it the spell resistance ability, which means it has advantage on saving throws against spells and magic effects. That one's an easy translation. It really is. It is a much simpler mechanic to deal with. So one of the things I was kind of wanting to do, because it has such a small health pool, and we were talking last week about when you translate a creature from 3rd edition to 5th edition, you really need to just about double its hit points in order to get the same effective 
amount of hit points just because of bounded accuracy and the way that hit points work in 5th edition as compared to 3rd edition. In 3rd edition, you had much higher ACs and you had much higher save values. So you didn't go through hit points as quickly as you do in 5th edition. There was one thing that I was wanting to do, which was give it the Arcane Ward ability from the Abjuration Wizard, which is it gets a barrier that has 28 hit points that basically acts as temporary hit points. So we're just about doubling its hit points by having this barrier. The barrier takes damage until it hits zero, and then the damage starts going to the Spellweaver. And whenever the Spellweaver casts an Abjuration spell, the barrier recovers hit points of twice the spell's level up to its maximum. I like that. That fits. And like you said, that basically doubles its hit points. We can use that for what we call the effective hit points. So that does give this thing a little bit extra vitality to kind of work. And that also lets us tie into the old third edition ability where it's doing a spell focus into abjuration. It lets us sort of pull that across. And then the chromatic disc, I already talked about this a little bit. I'm wanting to use it as basically a pool for sorcery points that it can use for metamagic. You're going to keep it locked to metamagic only? Well, it can use the spell points in the disc and convert them into spell slots at the same rate that a sorcerer converts sorcery points into a spell slot. But it can't use its spell slots to put charges back into it. Yeah, I'm okay Um, with that. Basically, I just gave it all of the metamagics available. So you can just pick and choose which one you want. Distance spell to double the range, empowered spell to re-roll up to four damage dice on a damage spell, extended spell to double the duration, heightened spell to give disadvantage on the saving throws, twin spell to choose a second target for the spell that you're casting if it's a single target spell, subtle spell removes verbal and somatic components. I was just thinking if you twin spells Bigsby's hand. I don't think you can twin spell Bigsby's hand. Because it's not targeting a creature. It is creating an entity, kind of like Spiritual Weapon does. You could definitely do that with Tasha's Mind Whip. Oh yeah, that would be... And then you could get the entire party. Yeah, I'd do that three times. You could lock down a party of six. Yeah. Ouch. With three second level spell slots and six sorcery points off of the disc. So it'd be half the charge of the disc. But you've locked down the entire party in one turn. Yeah. And you steal their items, laugh, and walk off. And we had talked a little bit, Psychic Defense, pulling that ability in from the Githzerai. So whenever it's not wearing armor and has no shield, its AC includes its Wisdom modifier, which is, I think, the same bonus that a monk gets for its unarmored defense. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay with that. That sounds reasonable. AC is going to drop a little bit like we talked about, but then you'll have your mage armor. At this point, it's only got 35 hit points. So it needs that AC-19 as a CR-10 monster in order to even hope to stand a chance. It really does. But again, too, if we want to run that CR test to see where this thing lands, all of its stats going to be coming on the offensive side. So here's one that I kind of wanted to run by you. I'm not sure if it'll actually work or not. I kind of want to give it spell absorption. So that if it succeeds on a saving throw against a spell, instead of whatever the save effect happens to be, the spell is absorbed by the chromatic disc, and the disc regains charges equal to that spell's level. I like that. That sounds good. I really like that spell star we talked about that comes with the pentametric. I would add that to the chromatic disc, that if it blows all of its chromatic disc points in one day, 
pick and create that spell star for one day. It would have to use all of its chromatic disc points and then whatever spells it decided to cast into that star for that day. So again, you're using your spell slots, you're using your chromatic disc. I don't know if those two things would conflict or be too much or if they could work in conjunction with each other. I think that would be too limiting for the weaver and that would be a whole lot of work for the DM. Okay, that's perfectly reasonable. Then the spell absorption, I'm okay with. I read that spell star ability and I was just like, ooh, that and siphon. Like I said, siphon, you could do some nasty stuff with that. And then, of course, we've got shielded mind. It's the same sort of ability where if you attempt to communicate telepathically with it, you have to make a DC 16 wisdom save or be affected by the confusion spell for 1D6 days. And it can be dispelled or removed by a greater restoration or a higher spell. So it's still a fifth level spell to get rid of it. Yeah, again, that translates right across almost one to one. There's no issue there. Then spell weaving, it's going to remain unchanged where you can do up to six levels worth of spells in a turn and cantrips take a hand. So cantrips, while they don't consume a spell slot, will still count as one spell level towards the total number of spells that you can cast in a round. Because you always need more hands. That kind of makes me think if you were to advance the levels on it to where it would be high enough level to cast higher level spells, would you give it extra hands? I've read that. I've read some things where people are suggesting trying to modify this so it had like eight or ten hands. I like the fact that it has three hands because that makes an arachnid by the time you have six arms and then your two legs, though it's still humanoid. If I wanted to scale this up, I would give it some sort of ring or something that could wear on so many hands that could let it cast up to two levels of spell per hand. That way it would need an item plus something. It could be possibly a loot drop. And then telepathy is going to stay the same. I'm putting the limiter that they have to be on the same plane to communicate with each other. That was not put into third edition. I think it was implied. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was implied. I don't know. That'd be kind of weird because if one was in the ethereal plane or the Shadowlands or the Fey Realm, Again, you could do some tricky stuff with that. But yeah, I am perfectly capable of accepting they have to be on the same plane. And then the last thing is I wanted to give it the Warcaster feat so that it has advantage on constitution saving throws to maintain concentration and that it can cast spells when creatures provoke an attack of opportunity from it. Yeah, I like that as well. With 4th edition, they broke the spell weavers just into weavers and there was quite a few of them that had something very similar to that. I forget exactly what it was called. But that is definitely something that wizards had tried to tinker with. So I am perfectly okay with giving them that ability. Whenever I was working on this, I was trying to decide whether I wanted Warcaster or if I wanted them to be able to concentrate on more than one spell at a time. Where the additional spells that you're concentrating on would reduce the number of spell levels that you could cast in a turn based on the spell level of whatever you're concentrating on. And I just decided that that was too complicated to keep track of. That would be really complicated to keep track of. I could think of lore reasons why both of those could work. These things, while they only have one brain, it says that they have a very convoluted and alien mind, so maybe they can concentrate on more than one thing at once. Well, I mean, they're already, they're already capable of casting multiple spells, multiple at, the spells same time. at once. Right, and I was thinking if they could concentrate on more than one thing at once, maybe that's part of why their mind and their thoughts are so alien. It causes madness because it's like hearing a bunch of radio static and everything all at once. Like I said, you could come up with a little reasons why both of those would fit. They I th- think I like forecasting better. They think in four dimensions is what it is. They think in time as well as space. Probably. As well as any other number of things. Right. And then leave the slam attack 
I'm going to give them multi-attack because they do get two attacks and allow them to substitute a cantrip for one of their attacks with their multi-attack. Yeah, that is something they had in previous versions as well. So that is one thing we failed to cover is that if magic absolutely fails with these things, they can do a slam attack for a whole 1d4 minus 1. Yes. They get a plus 7 to hit and they get 1d4 minus 1 bludgeoning damage on it. So they may hit you with a wet fish. On a good day. It is the fish slapping dance, which is going to slap you six times. So it's like the ultimate slap fight going on. That's awesome. Well, you need two hands to pull hair, and you still have four (laughs) hands to slap. But yeah, so that's basically what we got. Do you want to try to run the numbers on this? I know you were Um, saying... We can try. Here's the thing. You said that you would have a hard time figuring out their damage output per round, but I was actually going back looking at Chapter 9 in the Dungeons Master Guide, and underneath creating monsters, they have creating a spell. You have an idea if you wanted to create a spell, how much spell damage that would have. So they cap out at a 6th level spell. They can cast one 6th level spell which for a single target would be 10d10. If they cast a fifth and a first, that's 8d10 plus 3d10. So we could average out what a 10d10 spell would be. So we can go ahead and call it, I don't know what to call it. 55, but it's not going to be doing that every single turn because it's going to be casting things like silence and counter spell and dimension door and all of these additional spells that aren't going to deal damage. Right. So let's go ahead and you want to drop it to 40? For argument's sake, we'll just say using half of its spells to cast Ray of Frost every turn. Okay. Because at this particular point, it's going to have the three damage dice on it. So it's going to be 3d8. So it's a total of 98, which would be 36, 41 damage around. Yeah, so see, 40 damage. So, yeah, we'll just call it 40 damage for argument's sake. Okay. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's going to be fun. So we're going to start off with the hit points. Its actual hit points are 35, but with the ward, it's going to have an additional 28 hit points. So that would be 63 is its effective hit points, which would put it at a CR one half. This thing's frightening. Oh, I know, right? But then we have an AC of 19. A CR one half is a recommended AC of 13. That means we go up three ranks. One, two, three to a CR three. So far, so good. So that's its defensive CR. Going off of the offensive side, we're doing 40 damage is our average damage per round, which starts off as a CR six. Wait, before you do that, we are skipping a step with the defensive CR. Okay, okay. Because we have not accounted for its resistances. It doesn't have any damage resistances. Does it not have spell damage resistance? We've given it spell absorption. We've given it it resistance to psychic effects. Well, it has spell resistance, so it gets advantage on saving throws against spells. But spells spells that are psychic effects as well. No charms. Charm and fear are conditions. They're not damage immunities or damage resistances. So it isn't actually getting any resistances or immunities to damage. So it's not going to change its effective hit points that way. Okay. It might behoove us to go ahead and scale it up another one on the CR because of its spell resistance and combining that with its spell absorption. So I'm okay with going ahead and bumping it up to a four just for argument's sake. All right, so our offensive is starting at a CR six with 39 to 44 being the range and it's doing 40, 41 with our theoretical average. Its attack bonus is a plus eight which is two higher than its plus six. So it goes up one to a CR seven. And its spell save DC is 16, 
which is one higher than its 15, so it doesn't actually go up any, so it would stay as a 7. So averaging those together, 4 plus 7 is 11, divided by 2 is 5.5, which rounds up to a 6. So this would actually, going by the book, be a CR 6 and not a CR 10. Because it is a bit squishier. It is. And it doesn't hit as hard, typically. But, I mean, it's all going to depend on the spell loadout that you give it. The spell loadout that I gave it has a lot of utility compared to its damage. You can load it out to be a much more damage-heavy build, and then the damage output will go up substantially, and you will end up having a higher CR from your offensive side as a result. Right. So I like this, that the monster or the creature is actually scarable by the loadout you give it. The other thing you can do that will affect its loadout is the metamagics. So you start putting in like double spells or empower spell, things like that. And you're definitely going to be bumping those numbers up pretty quick as well. And so those are things we haven't covered. So yeah, I would say it really depends. If you want to give it all defensive spells, it's going to be probably, like I said, on the lower side, CR5, CR6. If you want to make this thing a glass cannon and just give it a bunch of fireballs and some orbs of destruction or any kind of crazy stuff like that, those numbers will ramp up really fast. I'm happy with how this is turning out. Yeah, I liked how this turned out. This is actually a lot of fun. Again, we got to check out a really cool monster that sadly gets neglected quite a bit. Some awesome bit of lore. Again, kind of got to build a monster, in this case, almost from the ground up, which was a lot of fun, too. And I wanted to do this to give you guys an idea of how I go through it. And hopefully the way I go into it has helped you and not just confuse the bejesus out of you. I realized this episode went on a little bit longer than normal. And I apologize for some of the rambly bits near the beginning. But this is the process. It's really not quick if you're doing a translation. If you're creating a new monster, you can go a whole lot quicker than this. These translations, again, they get murky. At the end of the day, you do want your monsters to be balanced. Because you want your people at the table to have fun. If they're too weak, they're not fun. If they're too strong, your players are going to get annoyed. and You're going to have to throw in some deuce ex machina type stuff to save your party. And if you do that too much, it gets clunky. And anybody can throw an ogre or a pack of zombies or something like that that's just got a whole bunch of hit points and not a whole lot of utility onto the table. But something like this... The Spellweaver is just the complete opposite end, and it lets you really manipulate the field a whole lot more than you would with just a simple, dumb sack of hit points. Right. There's time and place for both, but like I said, this Spellweaver hits all of my geek buttons. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. If you liked what we did, or if you have an idea for a future episode, please let us know. Send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook and Instagram at undercommontaste. I'm still doing daily RP prompts from my Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar. They go up on the Twitter account every day, six days a week, and they are going up on the Instagram and Facebook accounts as well. You can find our podcast on most every podcasting platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify. If you would, please give us a like, a subscription, comment if you can. Let other people know what you think of the podcast. It'll help us get our visibility up so that hopefully we can pull more people in. Excellent. We hope to see you guys again next week. Happy gaming. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.